Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out to the 44th Annual Boston Sci-Fi Film Festival. I'm going to be your moderator today for Who Are We? Loving Sci-Fi in a Dystopian Future. Uh, before we get started real quick, let's just give a big round of applause for Orleans Restaurant for hosting us here today. And for Mike and Karen and Dana and Lucy and Anthony and it for taking care of us and doing everything. If you did not know, if you're in the restaurant here, we're going to be talking about sci-fi and why we love it uh, with our lovely panel of uh, panelists, which I will go through in a minute. Uh, so I just wanted to let people who are not here on purpose know, like the two ladies who just looked up like <laughs> meerkats, what's going on? Uh, hi, we're going to talk about sci-fi movies. Feel free to jump in at any time, ladies, or anybody else. We will do a Q&A after I'm ask, uh, done asking our panelists my silly questions about sci-fi. So if, if you have a good question to ask any of them about uh, the podcast they host or the movies they make or the things that they do or just about sci-fi in general, Feel free, write it down on a cocktail napkin and ask it when we get to the Q&A. Now on to our panelists. We have a lovely group of three panelists here. Uh, all the way on the end there, we have Paul J. Salonoff, who is a filmmaker originally from Natick. Uh, his film, Encounter, is going to be premiering here at the Fi Sci-Fi Film Festival Saturday, February 16th. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Immediately to is his right, on? we have writer and editor of Fireside Magazine, Julia Rios. She is also the host of a very interesting podcast called Skiffy in the Fanty Show. Do I have to tell you to clap for each of them? Is that? <laughs> okay. And then finally. Please clap. <laughs> finally, the man who needs no applause. No. Uh, uh, he's the host of the Spectology podcast. Uh, and he came all the way to join us from New York. Please give it up for Adrian Ryan. Hi, welcome. And I'm your uh, moderator, by the way, Detter Dennis. I am a comedian, a host, a uh, podcaster myself, actor. I do everything for money. Uh, so anything you ask, that is what I'm here for. Let's start off with an easy softball question for our panelists. Uh, and we'll go down the line. We'll start here with Adrian first and foremost. Is, uh, what is it that you love about science fiction? Yeah, well, that's, that's the big one, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's the reason we're here, basically. Uh, yeah, I, so the thing I love most about science fiction is the ability to like tell types of stories that you wouldn't be able to in other genres, necessarily. Um, and particularly, like imagine ourselves in a future world, imagine ourselves in a different world, imagine how we would either react to those situations or, you know, and also do world building in a sort of like revolutionary way, in a way where we can imagine, like, what's a better world? world look like? What's, uh, what's, what's bad about the current world and how can we, you know, write metaphors to help us understand that? Um, I was reading a, an article today about like imagining climate change and don't change anything except for make it aliens. Like, <laughs> like aliens are doing climate change to us and all of a sudden it feels more visceral. It's still, uh, you know, in a hundred years the aliens will have won. We're going to fight back against that. Whereas like a hundred years we will have lost to nature. It's, it's hard to fight against. So uh, yeah, I think that's a lot of, of the the way that I think about science fiction. Julia? Yeah, okay, so I, I have to agree with Adrian that all of those reasons are really good. I also just think it's a lot of fun. It's really fun to imagine all kinds of possibilities and things that seem impossible and the scope of wonder that's available. I've, I've loved it ever since I was a kid and I just love spending time in fantastical landscapes and societies. And Paul? Yeah, um, uh, you, you really 
did a great job of uh, <laughs> basically summing it up. I mean, I guess what I can sort of add to that is like when I was five years old, I saw, I'm dating myself here, but I saw Star Wars in its original release and uh, my parents said my eyes bugged out of my head and, uh, and, and I was hooked, you know, from that point on because it was... Wow, you know, anything is possible. It's a, the, the, you know, science fiction for me is about, yeah, the anything is possible and the ways you tell stories. And I really loved, you know, stuff like um, Twilight Zone and, you know, Outer Limits, where it was sort of like the sci fi of ideas where it was allegory and we could explore different themes and different ideas, you know, using aliens and using, you know, as, as uh, um, you know, in the stories. So, the, you know, that that's for me. And, I, and I've just always, I've always loved sci-fi and Doctor Who. I'm a big Doctor Who geek. <laughs> and, we need to talk. And, uh, Paul, you actually just uh, answered what my second question was going to oh. be. What do you think is, what was your earliest memory of something science fiction? Yeah. So, for you, well, the original release of Star Wars, me, very similarly, I remember watching, like, Return of the Jedi mm -hmm. uh, on HBO in my, parent, in my grandparents' basement. Like, that for me, like, I don't even know what's going on, but I'm watching the third of the three movies and I'm like this is something I need to know more of so but other than uh, uh, Star Wars is there anything uh, when you were younger that you're like oh yes this is me and this is gonna be the rest of my life yeah well the funny thing is when I, I actually when I saw Star Wars it was actually a double feature in Cape Cod with Logan's Run and the, oh, the wow. and, and I remember I think I fell asleep after you know after Carousel and Logan's Run, but it really stuck with me. And the irony would be that years later I, I actually write the or wrote the Logan's Run graphic novel series with uh, William F. Nolan, which would be like that was a weird full circle to come to. But it was like, um, but it was it was it was definitely a Doctor Who that like really it was shown here in WGBH. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but it was uh, you know they showed like the Tom Baker Doctor Who's. And I was like, oh, you know, I just like wanted to stay at home and watch and travel in time and space. So that 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 really had you know lasting impact on my life. <laughs> Julia, what do you? Uh, what's your earliest sci-fi memory? Well, both my parents loved it, so I grew up on it. And um, th probably the earliest concrete thing that I can really remember that was a special thing was that my mom's church, someone found a VHS copy of the first Star Wars movie when I was four. And I remember <laughs> we went to the church for a movie screening night, and this VHS copy like was wibbly-wobbly for the first five minutes, and like <laughs> then suddenly Jawas appeared. And I just remember being like, whoa, what are those things? And I super loved like t the talking robots and then Chewbacca who is still my favorite Star Wars character to this day so that's probably the uh, first like very special moment of remembering a, a specific instance of science fiction but I also you mentioned the Twilight Zone Paul yeah. and uh, I remember that as a family we always used to watch the Twilight Zone marathons on holidays because they would play like all old Twilight yeah. Zone episodes and I really loved those they terrified me and I also kind of like enjoyed being scared by them and thinking through the possibilities of like if I were in this situation what would I do and Adrian yeah so my earliest science fiction memory is actually the first sci-fi book i ever read which was islands in the sky by arthur c Clarke, which oh, wow. was yeah, yeah. i guess it'd be like ya now but it's one of his young young adult novels and um you know i i grew up in rural alaska and we grew up in like really out in the woods like we lived in a cabin without running water for the first like 15 years of my life and so that was this kind of like you know thing for me of like oh it's like a you know i mean it's 
it's like a young white kid like me, like going to space, like, oh, I can see myself like in this different setting and in this different situation in a way that, you know, was really kind of eye-opening to me because up until that point, like all I'd ever known was kind of like, you know, running around in the woods in Alaska. So that made a really big impression on me, you know, and, and going to that kind of like feeling like, oh, I have this representation, I have this, you know, kind of like I can see myself in a different situation was really, really important for me growing up. Um, and so, yeah, you know, we, we, I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of TV, so a lot of the stuff I did was, you know, my dad would like let me like sneak in some Star Trek and stuff like that from time to time too. So that big, big Trekkie since I, as long as I can remember, essentially. Now, we already started talking about uh, allegories uh, that are associated with the science fiction uh, genre. Um, and there are really allegories for like political climate. Uh, or social situations, or just like the you know the, the the things that we are scared the most of, or whatever. Uh, so, Julia, asking you, starting with you, is there a particular metaphor uh, for sci-fi genre that you most prefer to read or to watch about? Like, is it zombies? Is it aliens? Is it uh, you know nuclear scare or you know terrible governments? Uh, something like that. Any of those things that you prefer to watch the most? I think one of the things that I really love is time travel. I'm really interested in the idea of like what we can do and how, if we had a chance to do something over, could we fix it or what can we do to make the future better? And can we can we visit a previous time and learn from them? Can we visit a future time and learn from them? What else is out there? I think that's one that I return to over and over again. So Doctor Who definitely, I didn't discover Doctor Who until I was an adult, but then I fell in love with it because it's this whole universe of possibilities. All right, before we move on, favorite uh, time traveler? Oh, favorite. Because mine is Kyle Reese. Okay. Kyle Reese turned, Gen uh, turned Sarah Connor in from a waitress who can't balance her checkbook into a badass chick and shoots a bazooka. <laughs> That's great. Uh, favorite time travel? That's really, really hard. Favorite time traveler? I, um, I feel like I'm just like in this Doctor Who place right now. Um, so I have to say I really love the new Doctor. She's great. But I also, uh, the first Doctor that I ever watched Doctor Who with was Tom Baker. And uh, so that's probably my favorite. And specifically also the first Romana. So I think the first Romana, not the second one, is maybe my favorite time traveler because she was so competent and interesting. And, and she was just constantly kind of like solving problems, mm -hmm. which is great. Uh, moving on to uh, back to Paul. Uh, what, what's your favorite genre of uh, your favorite type of allegory for sci-fi? Um. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I love. I'm really obsessed with robots. I, I think robots are like really yeah, cool. So I love nice. like robot. But you know, my my is that is that even science fiction now, and not just science fact? Yeah, yeah I know, right? <laughs> robots. I know. Um, you know, but when it comes to sort of like allegory or themes that I really love, it's like the idea of what defines humanity. You know, in, in my favorite um, science fiction movie of all time is Blade Runner, the theatrical cut. Um, and But the reason why, I mean, one of the reasons why specifically is because to me, what makes Blade Runner special is that it's about a a man who has to act like a robot to kill robots that just want to be human. You know, like, it sort of distill it down to the simplest thing. And if any of you guys saw 
Blade Runner 2049, which I equally loved, um, there's one scene in that movie that I think just defines it all. There's a scene where Harrison Ford has, he has some liquor in his hand and he pours it on the ground, like some whiskey, and this dog comes into the frame and laps up the, 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 the whiskey, and um, the Ryan Gosling character says, oh, is that a real dog? And Harrison Ford says, does it matter? And it's like, to me, that distills the whole thing down, where it's like, how do you define humanity? If this dog, if you believe this is a real dog, then isn't it a real dog? If this dog believes it's a real dog, isn't it a real dog? Does it matter if it's a construct or not? And I think that, to me, is endlessly fascinating. Uh, and before we move on, question for you. Uh, if you had to pick, uh, if you had to bet all your money on a, uh, on a robot fight between Rutger Howard's replicant from Blade Runner or Hal from uh, from 2001: A Space Odyssey. Who who's your bet on? Who are you betting on for for the for the the win? I think Vincent from the Black Hole is going to come there and kick your asses. <laughs> He's just going to slide in under the He's bottom rope and it, to hit one of them with a chair. Yeah, yeah. Or old Bob's going to come in there. Actually, that's the first thing I ever bought on eBay was a Vincent model kit. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, uh, and then Adrian, your favorite uh, uh, type of allegory for science fiction. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say one of the things I love reading is post-apocalyptic science fiction and really thinking about, you know, sort of like, and, and one thing I've been doing recently is reading a lot of post-apocalyptic science fiction that maybe comes from different cultural traditions. So I read some Japanese post-apocalyptic science fiction, and then um, I'm reading right now a book called Brown Girl in the Ring by Nayla Hopkinson, who's Caribbean-Canadian. And one of the really interesting things about this is the way that I always grew up in post-apocalyptic fiction was this idea of like it's all about like the rugged individual it's about you know it's like preppers it's it's you know doing what you can for you and maybe your family to survive um, and in a lot of other cultures cultures that maybe actually experience apocalypses or like have experienced apocalypses before um, there's this it's less about society falling and more about how do you build society how do you like transmit society through an apocalypse and it's a really interesting kind of like perspective perspective shift that I had, this idea that like, oh, apocalypse might mean like, yeah, sure, most people die, but you don't survive through that without a community. You don't survive through that without a, you know, larger group of people. And in fact, like part of society in an area such as, you know, Japan, where there's earthquakes, where there's volcanoes, um, like society, the point of society is to help you through the apocalypse. And you want to like keep that knowledge for the next generation that has to go through it. Um, so yeah, so I, I don't know if that's exactly an answer. It's more genre but <laughs> I like it I like it, but, I uh, it. <laughs> and before we move on I just want to ask you uh, if you were to survive the apocalypse uh, I think all right all uh, uh, if you're gonna think, uh, survive <laughs> the one which one would you prefer to be in uh, in an entire planet of monkeys or uh, would you want to be the last man on earth where it's all vampires Oh geez, monkeys! Yeah, <laughs> you want to be the one man, yeah, yeah, one man against me, the monkeys. Me against the monkeys, I feel you, like you I can snuggle with monkey, monkeys. Yeah. The monkeys I and I can come to a tree. We can figure <laughs> some stuff out there. Look, I'll, I got I got a banana costume. They'll love me. Uh, I can feel a banana like the best of them. <laughs> uh, and then, similar, since we're uh, outside of the allegories, there's a lot of subgenres of science fiction. You have things like sci-fi fantasy, with, with like knights and dragons stuff like that. You have horror sci-fi, and of course there's the good old-fashioned supernatural with ghosts and stuff like that. Um, as uh, both fans of, of uh, sci-fi and creators, what is your, uh, which genre most appeals to you? 
for either creating or watching. Like for me, I can sit down and watch TV and movie shows about dragons all day, every day, and I love it. I love it. it, it like wizards and the whole thing. I love it. And I don't know why it gets lumped in with science fiction, but I'm gonna take it because I love it so much. Uh, but uh, starting off with Paul, which. Uh, uh. <laughs> um, I think once again I'd have to go with being lame and boring Is that I love sci-fi drama I love sci-fi drama I mean that's why when I was given the opportunity to make a movie I decided that was the genre I wanted to, to explore you know because I think of movies that really you know mean a lot to me I'm a big fan of Britt Marling you know what Britt Marling is she did like Another Earth and Sound of My Voice and she's got that uh, show the uh, AO a- the AO on on um, the OA. OA the OA thank you thank you which is going to come back uh, the eventually OA. Okay. Um, yeah thank you um, see I, I'm but, I grew up in the Boy Scouts so when I saw that on Netflix OA I just thought it was Order the Arrow and it was just a bunch of people running around white guys dressed as Indians but you know I think of like mo- like I, I saw this movie last year that I really loved uh, called The Endless and I think it's playing on uh, Netflix right now do you guys familiar with this movie it, it's it's like this. It's this really great, like, very independent, like, works despite. It's very rough around the edges, right? And it almost works despite itself. But it's this really endearing little sci-fi movie that I just loved because it, it was just, you know, a movie doesn't have to be technically perfect to be enjoyable. And I like that genre can, you know, you can do really big movies, you know, uh, in that sort of sci-fi drama. Like Solaris is like m- my favorite book and one of my, uh, you know, favorite uh, sci-fi things. And even though that's a big like 2001-esque kind of thing, it's still a sci-fi drama about a man who can't let go of the woman that he, you know, he loves. And um, I, I just, I don't know, that, that always excites me. A good sci-fi drama always excites me for some reason. Julia? So this is a really tough question to choose a specific trope that I'm excited by. Um, because, so my day job is an, I edit science fiction and fantasy for a magazine. I'm constantly trying to find different kinds of stories. It's not just one thing. And I'm always really conscious of not wanting to take too many ghost stories and become the ghost story magazine, for instance. Um, So from that perspective, I'm really hyper aware of the fact that I do love all kinds of tropes. But if I think about the stories that I'm drawn to over and over again in kinds of feel, I'm going to kind of take a, a leaf out of Paul's book here and say that it's more what the story makes me feel like. Uh, the things that I constantly come back to again and again are things that give me hope, uh, things where people have to work together and do find a way to solve problems successfully. Some some films that I've really enjoyed in recent years include Arrival, yes. where people have to work together to communicate with the aliens, and then like the ultimate resolution there is a hopeful one. Uh, in last year, my favorite movie, I think, is probably going to be Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which, Hell again, yeah. is really community-centered, really has a, a very colorful, diverse community, and not everyone gets along, necessarily, and some people's goals are in opposition, but the the thing that I left the theater feeling was hopeful for humanity, which is really exciting to me. And Adrian, what's your uh, favorite subgenre of science fiction? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll give a shout out to the like 
drama, the sci-fi drama, and Brit Marling in particular. That was actually one of the things I was thinking about. So I'll, I'll do something slightly different. That's and getting say, back for you for that first <laughs> answer. Yeah, right. <laughs> when you I took everything like, I was going like, to say. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to say space opera really generally. Like I said, like, you know, in terms of like film and TV, Star Trek was really like where like science fiction started for me. And this idea of, you know, I mean, one is just like the, the tropes, the genre tropes of like spaceships and aliens. It's freaking cool. It's fun, you know? Um, but then on top of that, uh, one of the things I like about space opera is you can do a lot with it. You have like, you know, often ships with a constrained community and it's a lot about like how does that community work together or not. Um, and on top of that, you know, you can have like space opera plus post-apocalypse. You can have space opera plus like eco-science fiction. You can have space opera plus a lot of, you know, fantasy in, in Star Wars. Um, you can have that plus a lot of different things. And so I really like the kind of, you know, there's these elements that always stick through it and then you can play around with it a lot. So I like that. You know what's funny? You know, like talking about space opera, it's like, so, you know, I, I have this, I just love movies. I watch everything. So my like top 10 movies of all time are like very weird and very diverse. But, you know, Blade Runner being my first one, but do you know I always say that my second favorite movie of all time is, and this is where I'm not a huge Star Trek fan, but Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan <laughs> is just like this great movie and really talking about space opera. I mean, it's really, I mean, it, it, there's just something about that movie that makes me happy. The music is great. It, it's you know ultimately hopeful, you know, and but you know it's all about the relationship between these characters and working together. And well, that way, it's actually operatic. Yeah, yeah. So it's like it, it's it's it is when it works, it works. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things I love about all Star Trek generally is that it's a it's a big, long sweeping dramatic tale of people trying to work together to solve problems, which is great. Yeah. All right, uh, and keeping with you, Adrian, uh, are you team cyberpunk or team steampunk? Oh, cyberpunk without even... <laughs> I mean, I'll, 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 I'll get to talk about something I don't like, finally, yeah. Huh. Uh, oh, please, yeah, feel free to, to, to go enemies. off on how much you hate uh, steampunk. No, I don't, I don't hate it. I just, you know, with the, the stuff I've seen, the stuff I've read, it, it, you know, I, I would say that in a lot of ways, like, cyberpunk has this genre, and it started off as a literary genre, where steampunk in a lot of ways is an aesthetic and a, a visual media um, genre. And so it's, it's interesting to compare those two and I think the punk label often means that they do get compared to each other even though one is really this kind of like literary thing that's trying to like capture a certain moment in time in the late 80s while the other is more of a you know sort of fantastical and like visual style as much as as much as anything else um, but like uh, I, I like cyber stuff <laughs> I like cyber stuff so ultimately I have to go with that <laughs> excellent uh, Julia team cyberpunk or team steampunk Okay, this is rough, and I have to say that in the literary world, definitely there are people who will completely argue with you about whether or not steampunk right, is right a... Um, <laughs> there, there are definitely literary works and people who will claim that they started it. Uh, it's a whole big thing. I feel like it started with Jules Verne. Um, if anyone says different, yeah, show me the timeline. I, I feel like that's accurate. However, there are people in the 20th century who will say that they started steampunk. Um, I think that... Steampunk is a really interesting aesthetic and it's fun, but the problem with it for me is that too often it 
ends up erasing the realities of what life is like for lower classes. It erases representation other than white people. Hmm. Uh, it tends to romanticize Victorian culture in a way that I don't think reflects what actually happened and isn't particularly healthy for us to dwell on. Um, so I'm going to have to go with Team Cyberpunk because this allows us, A, to explore all of the different parts of society, and B, to imagine future things, which is really exciting. Um, and also, you can kind of get a little bit of that steampunk aesthetic mixed in if you look at things like The Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson, which is a book, not a movie, where they have like a whole Victorian society in their cyberpunk future that does the Victorian aesthetic with technology. And finally, Paul? You had plenty of time to mull this one over. I, yeah, yeah, it looks well, like this one. This is well, the question that's tearing you up the most. Well, I'm torn. I'm really torn because um, uh, I I would say cyber cyberpunk, you know, definitely. But this will make all you Doctor Who fans <laughs> jealous. I actually own the Paul McGann TARDIS console, which is the ultimate piece of uh. of steampunk. You know, it's, the, it's the only one in the United States. I'll show you pictures afterwards. Um, so I have this huge piece of steampunk in my office at, at, at home, but I prefer the cyberpunk... Uh, uh, storytelling much better. <laughs> I mean, you said your favorite movie is Blade Runner, so I yeah. feel like yes, it's, it's you have to be yes. Team Cyberpunk. Exactly. Right. I, it, also, just really quick, like no, 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 no. Cyberpunk. You know, I think to Julia's point, like that's how I found out about like the idea of trans people, the idea of body modification, the idea of like being able to modify yourself so you're not just what you were born with in a really interesting way. Um, and so and that, that I think is a really important when you're talking about kind of like erasure versus like imagination. Yeah. I think uh, I'm team cyberpunk and I think one of my favorite uh, cyberpunk adaptations uh, is the terrible, awful, god, terrible movie is uh, Johnny Mnemonic <laughs> with... <laughs> Keanu Reeves, and I, I will stand wow, yeah. by that movie being uh, worthy of watching if you're yeah. into cyberpunk, but uh, maybe not the best movie to like hold up on your shelf and say, yeah, let's watch that on your first date with a woman. Like, that's not... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I have to say, I remember watching as a child The Net with Sandra Bullock and oh being boy. super excited for getting the internet and virtual reality, even though it was really scary. <laughs> <laughs> the Net does not hold up very well, but it is very funny to watch now where they like crash a Windows 95 symposium at one point. <laughs> uh, I'm surprised no one's mentioning Virtuosity with <laughs> Russell Crowe in one of his first rows, roles. You remember that movie? Yes. Oh, boy. I remember of it. I don't remember itself. Yeah. I don't think I ever saw it, but I know of it. Um, Julia, as a writer, uh, I assume you read a lot. I assume uh, most of our panelists read a, read a lot. Uh, what is your favorite sci-fi book to movie adaptation? Wow. Who's who do you think has got who's done a good job? Whether it be true to the book, they made a version that's different but that holds up. What do you think makes a good adaptation from book to movie in, in science fiction? Mm. So I think this is really interesting, and I think that one of the things that I always like to keep in mind is the fact that when you have an adaptation, the books are always still there, so you didn't lose anything. You're just gaining an interpretation. And that's always good to know because it helps to feel better if the adaptation isn't exactly what you hoped for. And there's always a possibility of having a different adaptation later. Um, I mentioned Arrival recently. That's an adaptation of a story by Ted Chang. The story is really good. It's called The Story of Your Life. Um, and the story is different from the movie, but I think 
both things work really well on their own as their own things. They've made some significant changes to the movie, which they kind of had to for length reasons and for other reasons. And in some ways, that takes it away from what was written, but I think it worked really well. I also really liked the recent adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time, which, again, not very many people liked. Some people really didn't like it. I really enjoyed it because, uh, to me, it showed a fantastical world. It, uh, again, had people solving problems. It left me feeling hopeful. And it made me feel like if I had watched this when I was 10 years old after first reading A Wrinkle in Time, that I would have felt like it gave me a sense of that kind of wonder that I felt when I was reading the book. Um, so for me, I really enjoyed that. Uh, Paul, what do you think has been your best, uh, or your favorite book to movie adaptation in sci-fi? Um, I'm going to say two of them. One of them... Uh, Sorry, you got you to no, choose no, Life no, or Death, no, Sophie's no. Turn. No, I'm not going to. <laughs> no, two is fine. Go ahead. No, go my, my favorite, my, well, look, my favorite book of all time is Solaris by Stanislaw Lem. So I, I love um, every adaptation of it, which you know, we were just talking, I was talking with Miriam, there is actually an, an adaptation that was done before the Tarkovsky version from 1968. It was a made-for-TV version of it. Because um, I just enjoy the story so much um, that 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 is really like quintessentially in in staying on the Tarkovsky realm, um, um, Stalker, which is based off of a book called Roadside Picnic that I, I really love too. But I'm but the one I'm going to actually say is going to blow your mind is who goes is who goes there, which is you know the basis for the thing, which I think is probably one of the finest sci-fi horror movies ever made. Still holds up, so amazing. And it was funny when I when I had I'd been a big fan of it, and of course I've seen the Howard Hawks one, you know, thing from another world, and I finally read the short story, assuming that it was going to be more like the Howard Hawks film and then being pleasantly surprised to find that it was more like the John Carpenter film. So I would say who goes there. That's uh, finally, a really good answer. <laughs> <laughs> Mind blown. And finally, Adrian, what do you uh, what do you think is a good adaptation from book to movie? Yeah, I'm going. So uh, we actually just had a whole episode about this on on the podcast. I'm going to steal one of my answers from there. Um, you know, last month, if you guys want to look it up, just saying. Uh, but we uh, one of my answers um, then. I'm sorry. What was the name of that podcast <laughs> again? It was Spectology. Spe- Spectology. Yeah, you can listen to it at Spectology Podcast. I, I don't know where your URL is. <laughs> Um, so we we spec spectology.com. Uh, easy, easy. Yeah. The, the, so it's actually a movie that's getting shown here at the film festival, and it's called a riot or uh, not arrival. Sorry, it's called a- Annihilation. It's based oh, yes. on the book by Jeff yes. Vandermeer, yeah. uh, written and directed by Alex Garland, who's like one of my favorite, especially writers. He's written Sunshine and all these other really great movies. Yeah. Um, but the adaptation, I think, is one of the best possible adaptations of that book. It's not faithful in terms of plot and events, but it is so faithful in terms of tone. And in a book that was so atmospheric and was so much about the way the book made you feel, like I cannot imagine a movie that does a better job of making you feel that way, which is at times scared, at times like 
unsure of yourself, of like identity, of what's going on. Um, so I, I absolutely love that. I'm really glad it's getting shown here because it had a very like short theater run and it's well worth seeing in theaters. And uh, yeah, it's just it's just great. And I, I hope he continues to get to make cool, weird movies like that. And can, can I, I, like, before encounter? you move on. No, no. Annihilation. 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 I, actually, I, I want to actually add on to that. I remember very distinctly, actually, when I saw Blade Runner 2049, they showed a trailer for Annihilation. And I was like, what is this? And like, I'm, I'm very savvy to what's coming out. And I saw this trailer, and I'm like, what is this movie? How did this movie get past me? I knew no, nothing about it, and it said that it was based on a book. I, I, I live at this place called the Iliad Bookstore in... in um, in North Hollywood, California. I just love it. It's like my second home. And um, and I immediately had to get that book. So, you know, I tracked down Annihilation and I read it. Um, and, you know, because I had heard that the adaptation was going to be very different. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I felt safe because normally I don't like, I know it's weird. I, I didn't want to, I like to be surprised by movies sometimes and then explore the books. Um, but... Yeah, I read the book, was so intrigued by it, and then how are they going to... Because the book is almost unadaptable. That's what's so crazy about it. And um, it, it is. It's like they took the flavor, they took the idea of, the, of what it was and created this wonderful movie that I saw twice in the theater and I, I've watched it, yet watched it again on Blu-ray. Uh, that last 20 minutes of that movie is some of the stunning, most stunning visual storytelling ever in a film. I mean, if you haven't seen Annihilation, you stay for the 24-hour film festival and watch Annihilation because I'm excited to watch it again. That's yeah, I just another really good answer. <laughs> I just spent this whole time you, uh, trying to find uh, when it's playing, and you already know it's playing on yeah. our 24-hour film uh, film marathon Saturday night through Sunday. Uh, so yeah, if you haven't seen Annihilation, now is a good time to go see it then during the 24-hour uh, marathon. Adrian, I want to party with you, bro. We gotta like, <laughs> like, oh, you guys don't like these people. Talking about sci-fi and bringing sci-fi fans together <laughs> on Valentine's Day. Like this is Aww. this is the this this is the best sci-fi meet cute you will ever find. <laughs> Um, and we're going to go, since you guys all do different forms of work uh, in the science fiction genre, we'll go specifically, uh, and we will we'll start with uh, Paul. Uh, in your opinion, what goes into making a good sci-fi movie? Uh, look, I, I think what goes into making any good movie, it's characters that you care about and want to go on a journey with. I think that's really the essence of uh, of. of of just any any genre, I know that's sort of a, a cop out answer, but I mean, you know, for science fiction, for me, it's like it's such a broad genre that I, I and it's funny because I actually I, I just started teaching classes uh, as an adjunct professor at the New York Film Academy, and one of the classes I'm teaching is um, master's genre studies. So we we talk about the tropes of each genre. We haven't gotten to science fiction yet, but science fiction is going to be a very interesting one because yes, there are certain tropes to it, but it's so like it's so broad it's so I mean because you know people forget like, like Frankenstein that is actually a science fiction story not a horror story so you know I'm really going to say great characters I mean I know that's sort of cop out but that, that to it's me is the out. essence of, of, of any good storytelling uh, and uh, Adrian what do you think goes into a good sci-fi uh, podcast making a podcast about science fiction yeah what uh, is the thing that's that that 
you as a podcaster or other podcasters who are going to get into talking about sci-fi, what should they focus on? Yeah, that I mean, that kind of assumes that I know or that mine's any good. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, there's stuff that goes into a good podcast, and I think a lot of that is having a clear point of view and a clear tone, and I think a lot of things that a lot of people who start getting into it kind of don't think about is a clear, like, structure to it. Like, what are you doing? And it's okay to be niche. It's okay to, like, be for, like, the best thing for a small group of people as opposed to, like, okay for a lot of people. And you will, you will grow more by being the best thing for a small group of people, I think. Um, then in terms of just science fiction, I mean, the, the I can talk about why I started mine in particular was that I felt that I listened to a lot of sci-fi book podcasts a lot of them have this kind of worry about going too deep into the plot because they might spoil it for other people. But I love talking about the ideas of science fiction. Like, that's why we're here is because science fiction has these, like, wild, crazy ideas. And I wanted to go as deep into them as possible. So, you know, I, I would say that that's really it for me is, like, how far deep into those ideas can you go? How far deep into the, you know, kind of, like, story of science fiction, the story of, like, who's making this for whom, why? And then, like, what are they actually saying? What do they think they're saying and what are they actually saying? Um, so that, that's the stuff I find interesting. Interesting, at least. Yeah, I was it come when it comes to the spoil uh, spoiler warnings. Me personally, if we really cared about spoiler warnings, we would never watch anything a second time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think if you have a movie, uh, if you're having a podcast where you talk about movies, you should automatically know they're going to talk about the plot. Uh, and what, and I think you should because that. To me, if you tell me about a movie, it makes me want to see it more, yeah. personally. And I think that's where we should live. Uh, that's the way we should think as a society. Uh, but I also have other opinions about society that you can read in my manifesto that will be released <laughs> shortly. <laughs> uh, and finally, Julia, uh, I'm curious to see what do you think goes into a good piece of sci-fi writing, uh, given the juxtaposition to movies itself. Well, I think that, so what goes into good sci-fi writing, I'm, I'm going to agree with Paul, good characters go a really long way uh, because you have to care about what is happening in, in this world in order to be invested in it. That said, there is also another tradition of science fiction that's more a story of ideas, and that's more about presenting a specific problem, and the characters are kind of just there as sort of chess pieces to solve that problem and it's thinking through what the problem is and that's also a valid thing and I think there are a lot of readers who really enjoy that kind of story I don't think that necessarily will translate as well to film um, sometimes you can have a film like that like Apollo 13 but in Apollo 13 one of the reasons why we watched that with bated breath was because we cared about whether those people were going to make it back um, so it's sort of I, I think in film, you do have to have characters that you want to follow. And in stories, I prefer them where you do, but sometimes you can get away without that. Uh, and then we will, uh, after this question, we'll open the floor to anybody who has a question for our panelist. You can ask them uh, anything about science fiction that you want to ask, anything about a particular thing in sci-fi that you like. You can ask them about... You know, the time when they're uh, going through puberty, they're socializing. Ask them whatever you want. Uh, we'll go to that uh, if you'd like to queue up or do anything like that after why, this why question. Why we're alone on Valentine's Day? <laughs> <laughs> or 
We're uh, not so alone on Valentine's Day. We're together. Day. We're surrounded by love. <laughs> we're together on Valentine's Day. Uh, and the final question I have for our panelists is uh, science fiction, STEM, superheroes, uh, which STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and machinery, uh, superheroes, the general geek culture is the pop culture of pop culture right now. In your opinions, do you think this is going to stay for good? Or is the bubble about to burst? And if so, when? Uh, and we will start with uh, Adrian. Yeah, uh, I kind of hope the bubble bursts, which is maybe not the answer that is expected. I'm with you. To give I, up here. I, uh, the fact that I keep watching my high school bully post things about being excited for the new <laughs> Star Wars just makes me die every time I open up Facebook. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't mind that. Like, I, listen, I love that. Like people who have liked this stuff forever can like now actually express that in a way where they don't get bullied. I love that other people who thought it was dumb can like realize how great it actually is. Um, that said, I feel like especially in movies, there are so many other opportunities to tell character-driven stories. And I think in particular the like superhero thing, like what it, you know, what Marvel is essentially doing to the movie industry right now is hard because it's really hard to make like medium budget movies just at all. Um, and you know, I, no, it doesn't exist. To... The medium budget movies don't exist. Right, anymore. they don't yeah. exist anymore, but that's yeah. where the most interesting like human storytelling yeah. usually comes from. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, and obviously like small budget indie films are great. There's a lot of that going on right now, but you can do more with the medium budget. Um, and so I, I really, that in particular is something that I'd love to see more of. And, you know, part of why I, I say like, hey, go watch Annihilation because it almost could have kind of fit into that and it bombed at the box office. And it's, you know, a lot of that bomb was because they the studios don't know what to do with it anymore. They'd rather give it to Netflix and charge less money for it in the first place. So that would be my thing. I mean, I love science fiction. Glad people watch it but I also hope especially in the movie industry that like things can work themselves out a little bit Julia <laughs> okay that's fascinating yeah, I is. think that that kind of ties into it there's a conversation in publishing that goes on all continuously that's like oh publishing is dying what's going to happen this has literally been going on for hundreds of years and every time people think something you know this is the end ebooks are the end of books it's it's never actually true what's true is that things are constantly changing uh, for me I love that there are lots of things that have made a lot of money and been in the mainstream uh, I also am a romance reader and a few years ago 50 shades of gray like came out of nowhere and blew up everything and became mainstream and suddenly like people's mothers who had never heard of S&M were like I am going to read about this man's forbidden room which is kind of terrifying to a lot of people and a lot of people decried it but a lot of smart people in the romance industry pointed out that this made it possible for a lot of other romance novelists to have their books published because they, there was suddenly like a voracious readership that wanted more of them. And for me, every time there's a Marvel superhero movie that makes a giant amount of money, that actually does create opportunities. And they may not be middle budget movie opportunities, they may be more Netflix originals, but that's still more opportunities for exciting media. And for me, if my high school bully says that they're excited for Star Wars, I'm like, all right, cool. I still don't like you, but I love Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I could not be happier that geek culture is not, and, 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 and I've put a lot of thought into that because I, you know, I grew up in Natick. Anybody who's local here will know that, like, Heisman Trophy winner Doug Flutie came from my high school, and, you know, me and my friend Lonnie were the only two, like, film geeks, you know, in this big sport, sports community, and it was tough. It was really hard growing up like that. But it, it was so when. It turned the corner and geek culture became, you know, culture. I was thrilled. Like, I remember when Doctor Who was on Entertainment Weekly the first time. I was, like, running around the room. You know, I told you so. I told you so. I told you so. And, and you know, it was like, you know, finally. And, and I'll tell you, it's not lost on me that, you know, my, my film is showing, you know, in one of the biggest sci-fi film festivals in the United States and people from my high school who used to tease me about being into science fiction are coming to see my movie. So it's, you know, including, including two of my brother's friends who was, my brother was a varsity football player you know, uh, two of his friends that, you know, used to beat me up are, are coming. And it's like, this is hilarious to me. But my brother is now watching Game of Thrones. Like, he watched Game of Thrones for the first time, and he would be calling me and telling me, like, oh, my God, like, the Red Wedding, and oh, my God, like this. And I'm like, and I'm like, and I said to him the other day, I'm like, there is hope for you yet. There is hope for you yet. Because he was the, the athlete in the family. Uh, I'm really glad that you brought up uh, Doug Flutie and your, your high school football team, because yeah. we have Doug Flutie right <laughs> And some uh, Flutie Flakes. And I do love that you uh, mentioned the Red Wedding because I can audibly hear people's P PTSD yeah. about the Red Wedding. I heard someone just go, yeah. oh, Rob. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we'd like to open up the floor to anyone who has a question for any of our panelists. Is that we will start with uh, anybody who has a question who wants to throw their hand in the air for a question. All right. Uh, I got my start with science fiction, reading actually classic comic book uh, adaptations of yeah. Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. And then my father's uh, paperback collection of Edgar Rice Burroughs books. So I was wondering how you guys feel about those that that level of classic sci-fi. If there's anything um, in, in like pre-1950 or something that that you find interesting or that you don't like with your aversion to steampunk. <laughs> um, so I I love Jules Verne. I I also you know, grew up with my mom, like, reading Jules Verne to me, and in particular, the um, the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I think it was, like, 1960 Disney movie was, like, one of these, like, formidable movies for me, like, one that I could, we had it on VHS, and I could just watch it over and over and over <laughs> again. Um, so I think it's definitely cool. I also, I love thinking about it in terms of, like, you know, what was science fiction at a certain point in time? Like, how did they think about science differently than we do now? How did they think about, like, societal issues differently than we do now? So, uh, you know, I think it doesn't get talked about quite as much because it also just, like, stands alone as a classic. Um, but I, I think it's great. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I enjoy Jules Verne quite a lot. I read a lot of that, a lot of H.G. Wells. Um, one of my favorite books that's a pre-1950s book that is incidentally science fiction that people often don't realize is Cold Comfort Farm by Stella Gibbons, oh. which is written and published in the 30s and takes place in the 50s. Oh. And it's in, it's in England. Um, so this is a really fascinating book to me because it's written in this very brief window where she doesn't realize World War II is coming. And she's imagining a future that's a near future where people have video phones and private planes and things as part of their daily lives. But World War II never happened, and it's 1950s England that looks very different from what the 1950s actually looked like in real England. 
Wow. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I love a lot of the, the, the classic stuff um, you know, that I read. Um, I guess I'm going to be very careful how I put this. I just got hired to do something. I'm going to be very vague about this, but it's literally to read pulp science fiction stories um, to uh, see which would be good for a anthology show. Okay, and it's like, I'm going to be starting this job actually right when I get back. And it's like, I was born for this job. <laughs> like, it's like, it was, I couldn't believe it was offered. Like, I was literally born for this job. And then they go, they, we know, that's why we're asking you. Um, so that's going to be really interesting. I'm going to have to do a deep dive into a lot of that pulp, you know, that, a lot of that pulp stuff to really decide which, what, what is, like, worthy or, or is prescient or, or is worth telling to a modern audience. Any other questions? Uh, oh, yes, over here. Gentleman. A gentleman? Uh, I say hi to that. All right, so does science fiction reflect the zeitgeist of the moment? And if so, can you give an example? I didn't know we were going to be tested. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the final exam of your lives of science fiction. Uh, 100% science fiction reflects the zeitgeist of the moment because every story we tell is a story that we're telling from our experience. Um, so that's reflecting our perspectives in our lives. I mentioned Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse being my favorite film of 2018, and that's absolutely engaging with our current society and the, the current worries that we have about all kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, I, I work in politics in New York City, and previous to that, I was working in the startup world in New York City, and the thing I would always say is that I literally live and work in the science fiction worlds that I was reading as, like, a kid in Alaska. Like, I'm, I live in a cyberpunk city, and I am, like, working, building the cyberpunk future. So, you know, like, we, we live sci-fi now, like it is, and when you have folks like, you know, Elon Musk naming his ships after, like, culture ships, when you have, like, folks who were brought up on science fiction, you know, trying to build that world, like, for good or for ill, um, yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's not just reflects the zeitgeist, like, it, it is reality, I think, at this point. Yeah, and I think films, you know, like Bumblebee and Axel are, you know, fear of our robot cars and robot dogs. I, I don't know. I, I, I hope you know I'm being sarcastic. That's some Boston sarcasm for you. What they said. How's that? Uh, and, this, and while this gentleman asked uh, you guys a question, I'm going to be stealing all his french fries. Hey, so, yeah, I guess... Uh, Paul, you brought up short form, you know, sort of like anthology, so yeah. this kind of thing, like yeah. TV even is an example. Like, um, I guess I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit more about short form and what maybe like, as far as like, you're looking for maybe short stories or like, you know, ri written and movies and sort of the advantages and maybe disadvantages of working in that form versus sort of like a full encompass, you know, as far as character goes and that kind of stuff. I, I you know, I, I really love, um, you know, as a writer, I, I do lots of um, uh, different things. I'm primarily a screenwriter, but I also write um, you know, nonfiction uh, novels and short stories and, and comic books. And um, you know, I, I really enjoy. You know, there, there's something so like pure about writing short, like short stories, and especially like short films and stuff like that. And um, you know, I was lucky. One of the comic books I wrote was uh, Vincent Price Presents, and it was like almost like doing Twilight Zones, like writing these little O. Henry stories and stuff like that. And yeah, I, I think what it does is it's so challenging, it's almost more challenging as a writer to, to really make it, you know, really make it hit 
You know what I mean? With, with, with such a limited you know, amount of time. So I have a lot of respect for short stories, and I read a lot of anthologies, especially like horror. And I, actually, it's funny. For being a big horror fan, I don't read a lot of horror fiction, but I do like horror short stories. So, and it's like, so, you know, watching something like Black Mirror or like, you know, Twilight Zone stuff like that or Ray Bradbury Presents, those are, you know, did I even answer your question? I think that's what, it, that's how I feel about, that's what I said. <laughs> that's how I feel about short stories. <laughs> Any of the other panels? <laughs> I think that uh, short form leaves you with a need to get in and really get that punch of whatever you're going for in and then get out. Um, whether that is here is an atmosphere and I want to make you feel it or here is a social commentary and I want to make you know it or here's a relationship and I want to make you invest in it. It has to be in and out. And longer form is different because if you have like a long running TV show, you can develop relationships between characters over the course of seasons and have, you know, smaller ups and downs and larger ones that build very slowly. Um, if you're if you're having a, a two-hour movie, you can adapt a short story into a two-hour movie and really flesh out that world in a way that you can't in in the you know three to five thousand words of the story. Um, so I think it really depends. And anthology shows are going to be different than long-running half-hour shows because an anthology is going to be a bunch of short pieces as opposed to one longer thing that you can kind of build over time. Does that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> now I don't feel so bad. Now I don't feel so bad. <laughs> Adrian, do you want to add? You do not have to if you don't Yeah, feel uh, I mean, I, ultimately, like, I'm a reader and a fan, not a writer. Um, so what, what those, the, you guys are the experts, what you guys say? <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, I'm a big fan of near future sci-fi. Like, I think RoboCop's maybe one of the best examples of, like, a few things have changed, but most of it's pretty much the same. Um, can you guys talk about that at all? Do you see any differences between that and, say, something like Star Wars or Star Trek, where so much time has passed that everything has changed? Yeah, I think near future is really fun and also really fascinating because it's, in a lot of ways, it's harder. Um, because you're, you have to be grounded in what is possible, and then it's got a date on it. So you have things like Back to the Future, which they've recently taken out the Back to the Future ride from Universal Studios because it was traveling forward to the future of 2015. And when they <laughs> took it out in 2017, that was two years in the past. So you have a date on it. And you have like novels by William Gibson where he has to make them you know, a step ahead that's a believable step, but also grounded in our reality. And then they're going to be over with really quickly. Um, so I think it's a really challenging format to work with. And I think when it works well, it's really fun. When it works badly, sometimes it can also be really fun. And you get things where you're like, this doesn't seem realistic at all. And five years later, it seems very unrealistic. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I you know I as a again as a reader really enjoy that. One of the fun things is um, I read this book called America City by Chris Beckett recently, which is uh, uh, you know essentially about climate change, and he's writing a hundred years in the future. And in the time since he's wrote the book, 
like some of the stuff a hundred years in the future is like happening already. Uh, he and I like chat on Twitter about it sometimes, and it's it's a really interesting. I, I, I to Julie's point, it's hard. It's a lot harder to write about something that you will experience in the future because there you actually have to make predictions. Whereas a lot of especially far like. Space opera isn't making any predictions. Ultimately, it's it's allegory, it's metaphor, it's fun stories, it's maybe making you know some kind of prediction. But like, none of us are going to be around to see it ever. Um, whereas near future is really trying to you know like write about now plus five minutes. And I I, I don't know. That's it's really cool to when it works out well. I sometimes wonder if it's actually not just hard, but getting harder and harder. Well, and it's not just that we won't be around to see it. It's that when you go far enough into the future, you have a blank slate. Um, if you think about what happened 500 years in the past, we have some idea because we have written history, but we did not experience that. So in some ways, that's also a blank slate because you can sort of, you know people were people, and you know some of the technologies that they had, but like no one living experienced that, so it's a much broader canvas to play with. Whereas if you're writing something that took place in the 1960s, like a lot of people still remember that. So if you get it wrong, they're going to be like, that's wrong. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, yeah, Robocop, brilliant. I love Robocop. Um, uh, Who would have thought idiocracy would be so prescient in the future, right? Yeah, I think that's... Oh, the documentary? <laughs> yeah, it's a documentary, exactly. <laughs> All right, does anybody else uh, have a question for our panelists? No, that's okay. I will ask the final question. Uh, and the final question is mostly, you know, let's just plug other people's works because that's what we like to do. Uh, if someone came up to you and said, my friend does not like science fiction, what is the one thing you would suggest they watch that you think would make them a sci-fi fan? Because I think, uh, and you could go any, any book, r movie, whatever. I know one of the things I would tell somebody if they wanted to get, who was not a Doctor Who fan, is to do, uh, I think it's episode three of the uh, Weeping Angels, uh, where it's like, all time, where the, the term timey-wibbly came from. Like, the Doctor's not even in the episode. It's like the yeah, second season with Matt Smith, and he's in it like for five seconds at the end of it. Like, that I think is like the best Doctor Who episode to get somebody into Doctor Who who's not in science fiction. So to our panelists, whoever would like to speak first, what is the one thing you would suggest somebody watch if they were not a sci-fi fan to become a sci-fi fan in hopes? This is a terrible question because I get asked this all the time. And the, the thing is that I always end up talking to the person either directly or about the person they're asking for. And then I tailor the recommendation specifically to a person. So I really can't give you a good answer. Fair enough. Well, no, that's 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 an answer right there. Is that you? If somebody were to ask, you get the question a lot. Yeah. So you have to know more about the person themselves yeah. uh, to get to know to them. So I, yeah, I, I can make up a fake person named Jack or whatever, but I can't well, right on yeah, the spot. So like, so. I mean, the first thing I always do is ask, what does this person love? What are some of the things that they love? And then I kind of go with that, and I'm looking for matching feelings so you know if they if they love if they love a rom-com and that's their favorite thing i'm gonna suggest something that's more toward that end i'm if we're talking about doctor who i might suggest like the girl in the fireplace because that's a very romantic dramatic episode yeah it's interesting because because science fiction i mean I, when you talk science fiction you know 
thought of, oh, we're talking pure science fiction, because most science fiction that's mainstream that people will, you know, cotton to and, like, will, like, grab onto is more science fantasy. So, I mean, it's, you know, obviously something like, you know, a Star Wars movie is going to, you know, be a little bit more mainstream and way more accessible to an audience. But, you know, some of Spielberg's stuff, like, you know, if just talking about more pure science fiction, I mean, obviously something like E.T. or maybe even Close Encounters, but E.T. would probably be a little easier on them because it's dealing with things they can relate to, in, but adding on this fantastical element. But that said, like, there are a lot of people out there who are like, oh, I don't like Star Wars. I don't like anything that's <coughs> unbelievable and set in space. Yeah. And those people might really like Annihilation, depending on what they like to experience and read mm. and watch. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is how, I mean, I usually do the exact same thing. I ask, like, okay, well, like, what books do you like? And I'll, I'll recommend something that is, a, you know, it's the great thing about science fiction is it's a genre, but it also, like, encompasses many genres within itself. If you, you know, like, you know, stories where everyone dies at the end, I can recommend one of those. If you like <laughs> stories where, like, everyone falls in love at the end, I can recommend one of those. Um, <laughs> um, First so, one sounds terrific. Okay, but Dennis, what if everybody is also a dragon in the story? Yeah, all the dragons fall in love with each other. <laughs> um, uh, dragons are asexual. Okay? <laughs> um, you know, yeah, so I, I think it's, it's you know, then at the same time, like, you know, the one of the biggest movies in the world ever recently was Black Panther. I think that's potentially one to recommend to people. Like, it's different, it's interesting, it's also, like, a very science fictional story at the heart. Um, You have, you know, movies like Avatar, which maybe, you know, was what it was, but also, like, you know, it's it's some of the biggest stuff ever for a a reason. Like, there's stories that resonate with people, and so I think you can either look to that. um, Yeah. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go with that. If your friend likes Dances with Wolves, recommend Avatar because it's the same movie with blue aliens. Yes, exactly. So, all right, ladies and gentlemen, please give a big round of applause for our panelists. Uh, Paul J. Selma from Natick, who lives in uh, California now. Again, see his movie Encounter Saturday, February 16th, right here at the 44th Annual Sci- uh, Boston Sci-Fi Film Festival. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Julia Rios. You can read some of her works or you can also go to some of the things that she edits and approves at firesidefiction.com. And listen to her uh, podcast, Skiffy, in the Fenty Show. And, of course, uh, Adrian Wright here. Check out his podcast, Spectology at Spectology.com. Thank you so much for being here. Check out the rest of the film festival. And uh, everything you need to know, bostonsci-fi.com. Thank you. Also, Thank you, everyone. Paul has a book that he wrote, oh, which gonna... he brought with him. Oh, that's right. Paul has a book. I wasn't gonna... uh, let's show the book. Hold yeah, up the book. Show my book. So, um, the book wasn't on my notes. Uh, oh, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Where's the producer? I wasn't uh, even going to show it. But actually, it's got a lot of science fiction people in the, in the book. If you're uh, interested in working in the film industry, uh, I wrote this book called On the Set. But it has people like Edward Neumeyer, who wrote uh, Robocop and Starship Troopers, and uh, James Gunn, who wrote uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Greg Nicotero from The Walking Dead and Kevin and, and, Ross, uh, you know, from... James Gunn also wrote all those terrible, horrible tweets. Uh, no, yeah, was, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was but a Travis, I think it's a tragedy he was fired for, yeah, for what I, he put out. I agree. For what he put out while he's working for Troma Films, which is the most offensive of offenses, but... Uh, uh, actually, yeah, James sorry. and I worked on a Troma film together. I worked on Tales from the Crapper. I guess you didn't know that about me. That started me off on my journey. Um, but yeah, available online friend, and in Barnes & Nobles, so... Thank you for letting me shill that. I wasn't going to, but... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again and again. Big round of applause for Orleans for letting us do this here. Mike, Karen, Dana, and the rest of the staff. Thank you so much. See you at the rest of the... Uh, see you at the marathon this weekend.